Today, we're excited to be speaking with Dr. Patrick Riley, who is a senior researcher on the Google Accelerated Science team. His team collaborates with external scientists to apply Google's knowledge and experience in machine learning and computation to important scientific problems, ranging from drug discovery to quantum chemistry, material science, and nuclear fusion. Dr. Riley started his career at Google working for 12 years leading efforts in web search before moving on to Google Accelerated Science. We're fortunate to have him share with us today his insights into how scientific machine learning can move forward. This is the Materials and Megabytes podcast. So tell us about how you got interested in using machine learning for material science problems. So I spent a lot of uh, time at Google um, doing what is now kind of very traditional-ish data science work. So I was working in search, I was doing logs analysis, and you know building models of what users were doing and so on. And um, while that was a lot of fun and I learned a lot, I eventually got tired of thinking about that problem. I wanted to go think about something else and to, to learn about something new. And kind of coincidentally, the Google Accelerated Science team was starting about that time. And so I, um, I found out about it it was really excited because like, hey, this is a chance for me to both learn about areas and you know work on other problems that are not just these kind of uh, uh, traditional things. And I really, I really felt like there was an opportunity. I felt like there was a lot of things that um, that we were really good at in the data analysis and machine learning area that a lot of people could benefit from. And as I started, even as we started to go talk with biologists and chemists and so on, we really found a lot of examples where we thought we could really um, do something interesting. And so that sort of um, that sort of restlessness with my current project and sort of happened to just coincide with uh, other efforts starting up uh, in the Google Accelerated Science team. So that's really exciting. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Google Applied Sciences came about? Um, where do your problems come from? Are they internally motivated by Google applications or do they come from industrial partners or from scientific academic partners? I mean, so the real motivation was we saw an opportunity. Right there was an uh, there was a place where um, we believed research could be helped, and we didn't start it at, you know with the idea that you know uh, we would make lots of money from it. We started off because there was an opportunity, mm-hmm. and this actually you know Google generally has this attitude about a lot of things. If there's an opportunity, go for it. We'll figure out the other things down the road, mm-hmm. and that's been very much the attitude that we've uh, that we've approached our problems with. And so when we look for problems, we're just looking one for ones where we think we can do something interesting. Now we tend to stay kind of near buy things that are real applied and could help the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a big correlation between things that help the world and things that eventually make money. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we, you know, we start projects because we think they can have impact. Um, for example, the, um, we started a project doing uh, a machine learning for diabetic retinopathy screening of fundus imagery, which is imagery of the back of your eye. And part of the motivation was there's a lot of people in the world that should be screened for this, especially in um, parts of the world outside of the U.S., mm-hmm. and there just weren't enough doctors to do it. Mm-hmm. So whether any money gets made off of this eventually, we believe the good is going to be done for the world because of what, because of, of what we're doing, and that's really the, the motivation for it. So we track down projects in every way you can imagine, by the scientists that we know, by introductions uh, to them, running into people at events like MRS, um, reading interesting papers and cold calling the authors and saying, that looks really interesting. Um, so so, you know, we really, um, any way that we can think of, we sort of, you know, have those initial conversations, try to explore an idea. But, you know, it means that I talk to a lot of people about a lot of ideas and very few of those really become projects that we work on. So that's just, it's part of the, the fun of going through all these different ideas and thinking about where we can actually do something meaningful. Yeah, and part of the research process. Yeah. 
So what have been the biggest challenges of using machine learning methods for material science and like other sciences in general? So I think the biggest issue is that the data ends up being just really complicated. And um, if you look at things like, you know, when you do a biology or a chemistry experiment, um, there is just a lot of variation in that process um, that we just don't know how to control. Right, all kinds of factors show up. Everything from you know the time of day to the particular person who's doing it to natural variation in the way the in the way the um, underlying physical process evolves. And if you don't think carefully about all that kind of complexity of the data, you, you can very easily mislead yourself. And so um, I think some of the uh, issues with applying ML in, the, in these areas really has been not um, getting enough into the complexity of the underlying process and the, and, and the, and the data that, that comes out of it. So uh, another example is, you know, when one of the, the examples I gave in my talk today was when we first uh, got into doing ML on chemistry for, for pharmaceutical purposes, we did the standard ML thing of random cross-validation because that was just what everybody did. But we didn't understand the domain enough to know that that was not really an appropriate way to ask the ML question. Mm -hmm. And once we actually talked to people and we understood what was going on, we realized, oh, you you know, the molecules made tomorrow are very different than the ones that are made, that are made today. And we just didn't understand the complexities of this data generation process and how it was going to be done. And I think that you know anybody who wants to do ML, especially someone coming uh, from outside the field, really needs to be aware of this kind of complexity. So do you think that there is um, any way that we could possibly generalize to a, a kind of general methodology for determining what is the best way to validate our data sets? Or is this something that's really very problem specific and requires domain knowledge? Well, I really want to answer both. Um, and, you know, people talk a lot about data science now, and there's all these, like, data science master's programs and certificates programs showing up. But, uh, you know, fundamentally, one of the big areas in there is how do you think about data in general? What are the general principles that, that apply all over the place? Because even though the, the specifics of any one problem, knowing that you need to ask the question, thinking, you know, having the tools at your disposal to do the validation, to think about what the errors mean, and to have a set of ways of thinking about it, this is what a good data science education, either kind of on the job in the real world or through, through a kind of training academic setting, should really give people. And so, you know, this is uh, an area where I think there can be a lot of uh, tool and uh, knowledge support for it, but at some point you really do have to sit down and think carefully about uh, about the underlying problem. But I am quite hopeful that with all the, the work going on with data science education, including in um, the natural sciences as well, will sort of give people the better tools and frameworks of thought to really do a better job at this. So there's not going to be one standard thing that you can implement in a little bit of code, but I think there will be standard ways of thinking about these things. What are some ideas and methods in machine learning that have not been applied to sciences um, that you think would make a change? So let me let me sort of give a roundabout answer to this by talking a little bit about um, a little bit of a uh, classification of different problems, um, and then I see how them how they're getting applied. So there's one group of problems which are 
you know, you have some method for computing something and you just want a faster approximation to it. The big area you see here is people building approximations to DFT calculations right. and these kind of things. And it's absolutely a good thing to do. You can take advantage of the peculiarities of a problem, but you're really just using this as a, as a kind of, you know, as, as just a function approximator. And yes, there's a lot of complexities in it, but you just want a faster version of the same function. There's another um, class which is to um, do something that humans have to do and to make it automated. And you see this for things like um, microstructure segmentation or extracting features out of these kind of imagery or identifying the center of atoms in some kind of imagery. And absolutely things that humans can do, these especially these uh, sort of perceptual tasks, we will absolutely be able to get machines to do. They'll do it more reliably, probably higher accuracy, and be able to do a heck of a lot more of it. That's another great thing to do. You see a lot of it going on. Um, but there's, I think there's two other areas, and this is where I think we start to see a little more, um, more novel stuff happening from the machine learning side. One of them is we would like to have ML find associations that we did not know about before. Um, you know, let me give, give you another example from this uh, fundus imagery from the eye, because I think it's fairly, fairly clear. One of the things we're able to do with this was to show that we can identify uh, a person's self-reported gender from the fundus. This was no known literature that said you, you would be able to do this, right? right? And this is going to teach us something about the, some structure, some biology that's going on in the eye because we can identify this association. Mm -hmm. And we're using these models and interrogating them, trying to figure out what's actually going on. But these kind of things where we sort of use the models to answer something that we didn't know could be answered or allow us to do a discovery like that, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes that's going to be application of a classifier, which is what this was. We had the data, we tried it, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of methods that's being developed to interrogate these models, figure out what's going on, et cetera. And I think that class of things is, I think we're going to start to see more of mm -hmm. where you sort of get it, to, get a model to discover something new and then try to back, back out what's going, what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one variant of that is we build very, very complicated models. A lot of the, the least, re, uh, most recent ML stuff are these very, you know, these deep models, lots and lots of parameters that get very difficult to interpret. I think that you know there is some efforts often going in the name of symbolic regression mm -hmm. to try to come up with very very compact models mm -hmm. for a problem mm -hmm. and you know there's there's hints there that we'll be able to do something I think there's going to be more coming out um, in that world where we're trying to come up with these more compact models mm -hmm. that will be a little bit easier for us to understand what they've found so and then the last thing I want to say and this is where we are starting to see this happen more and more is people talking about um, talking about these models for uh, doing design and the techniques from the machine learning side are largely in this generative model space mm -hmm. and basically the way you can think about this is um, uh, the difference between the way a, uh, human chess players and computer chess players work is that human chess players think about very few moves right Right, and that's because they have they have essentially what we would now call a generative model mm -hmm. in their head, suggesting interesting moves to follow. Mm -hmm. And this technique is showing up. It showed up in AlphaGo, which mm -hmm. was the, the 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 Go playing machine. And this is a really different thing. So rather than you know saying, oh well, I can I can find all of these. Let me come up with a model that somehow is able to preferentially find good things to think about. Mm -hmm. And this is where humans are really, really brilliant sometimes, mm -hmm. is they think, 
they're able to say, oh, among the space of all theories I could imagine, mm-hmm. somehow they're able to sort of, you know, even if the first, you know, 10 or 20 or 100 they think about aren't any good, mm-hmm. that's still tiny compared to the vast space. Mm-hmm. And these kind of generative models to find, you know, and focus your sampling on the interesting part of a large space, I think is, you know, that's a set of techniques that I think we're going to start to see more and more of. Uh, show up uh, uh, in the physical sciences. Now, a lot of problems don't need that. If you can afford to search your whole space, do the chess thing, right? <laughs> you know, brute force it, you know, run CPU. CPU is cheap, that's great. But I think we are going to find problems, especially when you get into things like 3D atomic configurations and crystal structure prediction, where it really does start to get to the point where it's just too big a space to do that. And I, that's where I think some of these uh, interesting generative model uh, methods are going to be interesting. So, Interpretable machine learning um, seems to be something that's that's important and going to be increasingly important as machine learning kind of develops into the sciences and, and engineering. Do you think that there um, there's a direction forward in terms of developing methods that are are truly machine learned interpretation versus kind of using the machine to distinguish between human hypotheses or using the machine to kind of um, accidentally discover interpretations? So I want to let me give a maybe a short-term positive answer and a longer-term, so much more negative answer. So the short-term is I actually think we are um, there's a bunch of stuff going on to try to both in how we build the models and how we can interrogate what what's going on inside of them that we are going to get better and better about understanding what's actually going on. And I think we're going to build models probably slightly differently as well as develop better tools, algorithms, methods, ways of thinking that can help us understand such that we can do, you know, do things like, oh, what is the important relationship here? And so, but I think that is, you know, I think that very much kind of in the style of work that we're doing already, Mm -hmm. um, uh, that that's going to happen. So the kind of longer term, maybe a little more negative answer is that I think there's still a big flaw in the way we are doing machine learning. And um, let me use the example of quantum mechanics. So the principles of quantum mechanics are fairly easy to state once you understand Hilbert spaces, right? Once you have a bunch of mathematical tools at your disposal, it's actually like in some ways fairly simple. And this is why people like it. They're like, oh, once I have all these concepts, it's easy to express this. This is a kind of a funny thing, though, right? If you were just trying to, you know, our ML models today are not going to do this. They're not going to sort of make the concept of a Hilbert space and then use that to express the principles of quantum mechanics. We're just, we're missing something in the way that we are building these, that that kind of thing just can't come out of the type of models that we're building. And this is where I think there's still a significant gap in in artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. to how do we come up with these intermediate, self-consistent, interesting concepts Mm -hmm. that then maybe take a long time to understand, but once Mm -hmm. you understand them are very powerful tools. Mm -hmm. We're not not building ML like this. We're not Mm -hmm. building ML to come up with this kind of concept of a Hilbert space. Mm -hmm. To be true general AI, we're going to have to do that. So do you think that um, transfer learning is some direction towards that? So we're not developing a Hilbert space, but we're developing some mapping from inputs to some intermediate set of features that is then kind of generally applicable to different types of problems. So I think in transfer learning, in some sense, the problem is kind of phrased in the right way. How do I learn something general? But I still think we're missing something about what do we want that intermediate representation to look like? What properties do we want it to have? How do we discover the properties that are important? And so I actually am not 
Um, I think existing transferring techniques are going to be useful, right? But it's not going to be it's not going to be revolutionary in any of these things. I think I, you know, I I've used it. I will continue to use it, but it's not. It, I still feel like there's a there's a big gap there, um, and it doesn't quite get to what we really need. So, another kind of um, interesting feature, as you mentioned earlier, about kind of machine learning methods for that that work in the physical sciences and natural sciences is that they tend to be simple. Um, or the ones that have, you know, highly extrapolation, you know, properties tend to be simple. And I remember, you know, kind of many years ago when I was first learning machine learning, we were kind of at this cusp of um, SVMs becoming, you know, they're going to take over neural networks. Neural networks are never going to be important anymore. Um, and then, you know, a couple of years later, um, now we're kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. And, and it seems like the paradigm shift that happened was that neural networks got larger and the data got data sets got larger. And so it was, it was really, you know, what we couldn't use to do with neural networks, we can now because of this, this size effect. Um, but it seems like it seems like for the physical sciences, we almost want to go back in the opposite direction. So do you think that that's, you know, is, is that a kind of a way to think about, you know, how we want to um, move our, our methodology? I mean, the, you know, this tension between um, large models that tend to be hard to understand can have more problems with overfitting or specific, you know, sometimes have more trouble extrapolating, and very simple models that also may not extrapolate that well, but at least don't do a ridiculous job, which is kind of a description of a lot of these, you know, basic physical laws, even, you know, things like, oh, well, we're going to approximate this part of the stress-strain curve with a line. Right. right? Because it kind of is a line, right? right. But it's not, but everyone likes it because you can understand it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easy to talk about. And I... I don't think there's. I don't think there's one resolution to this. I think we're going to come up with simple things, and hopefully, machines will help us more than they do today to come up with those simple those simple things. But I do think some phenomena are just are complex, right? You know, the behavior of a polymer under various perturbations. I don't think you're going to be able to express in a tiny number of of uh, of. Uh, 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 of small, compact, little mathematical formula, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that you know, look at uh, fluid mechanics, mm-hmm. right? While the underlying, you know, equations in some sense are really, really simple, mm-hmm. like we still have to do these massive computations. We still don't really understand turbulence that well. Mm-hmm. And so, as you, if you want something that really talks about turbulence, the idea that it's going to be some tiny little expression that we can think about clearly, mm-hmm. I don't. Know, I just, I, I think that we've been maybe spoiled by the fact <laughs> that all of our, you know, the the mathematical theory we learn in our textbooks are because they're small mm-hmm. um, and you know there are you know I, you know I guess I believe mother nature is not that nice to us that we'll be able to concisely express all interesting phenomena in a small in a small number of parameters uh, one interesting read in this area is this um, uh, uh, essay called Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences by Eugene Wig- uh, Wigner. Um, and it's, it's a fairly old piece and it really sort of raising the question of you know, does you know, do we have compact mathematical theories because that's the way the universe works, or is it because that's what we're able to capture and express? And I think this is a really interesting topic. What is something machine learning theorists can do to advance interdisciplinary collaboration with other scientists? I mean, I think the thing that we really need to do in ML that the sciences really wants is a much better handle on uncertainty in models. 
Um, there are a few kind of standard things that people do now with ensembling and so on, but you know, we don't really understand well how to think about the interpolation versus extrapolation uh, kind of question and how to really measure and quantify uncertainty. Um, likewise, what can scientists do to advance the development of machine learning solutions to problems in their field? So I think there's a little bit of a uh, maybe bias in how I see the world here because this is the way we work. But I really think that a lot of stuff is going to have to be done with pretty close collaboration between scientists in the domain and computer scientists, data scientists, ML folks. There's just we're just unfortunately not at the point where where many things are plug and play and you can just go through the checklist and it's all going to work. All kinds of subtleties come up both from the domain side and from the ML side in, the, in these problems. And I do think that you know, having, you know, being open to collaboration and knowing that the machine learning folks are not going to understand the field and are just going to say ridiculous things and being, you know, and sort of, uh, uh, you know, taking time to really help people get into the environment, understand the problem well enough. So it's, I think there really is a two-way street of just being, being open to understand what the other side is doing and recognizing that there's subtlety in it, there's complexity in it, and you know, and both sides really have some unique things to bring. I think that kind of close collaboration is really how um, we're, going, we're going to advance uh, the, the, these fields and the, and the collaboration between the, the two sides. So, so for, for students that would want to kind of you know, work in this interdisciplinary space, do you recommend that they kind of pick one side and then you know, move slowly over to the other side? Or do you recommend, you know, should, we, should we have programs that really just teach you both at the same time? And is that even possible? Does that just make the PhD like twice as long? I don't think anybody wants their PhD to be twice <laughs> as long. Um, I do think, I mean, it's important that you have expertise. And so I think there is a real risk if you're only kind of good at materials and you're only kind of good at machine learning. I think there's real risk there because you risk mis missing things when they do get um, into real subtleties. So um, uh, I do, I guess I am not a big fan of, oh, let's just get a, you know, a little of column A and a little of column B. So I do think it, it's most important to develop real expertise in some area. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you can, you know, you can learn enough about an area to work, work coherently with people on, with people who are um, experts in other fields and this is what you know great scientists do is they go and you know they find great collaborators who and um, both trust their expertise but also don't trust it and say oh I can never understand what you do right. they say oh that's really interesting help me understand do I think about it like this mm -hmm. and mean that kind of that kind of rich interaction mm -hmm. now if that means that you know the computer scientist needs to um, you know take enough of the you know, engineering, material science, to at least have the language to work with, mm -hmm. I, I think that's going to be required. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we've, you know, gotten into, as I've gotten into new domains, you know, we've gone through the standard textbook in the domain, right? Mm -hmm. we, we went through molecular biology of the cell. We're going through some of the standard material science, you know, uh, 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 early coursework now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important to really uh, be willing to make that commitment mm -hmm. to make sure you have enough of a grounding that you can have a good conversation with the expert. Mm -hmm. And so I think that both sides are going to have to be willing to sort of put in the time to, mm -hmm. to make that happen. I don't think that real collaboration is going to happen with a very uh, kind of cursory understanding of what the other person is doing. Mm. That's a really good point. I, so I'm also curious, um, 
if you know as we kind of have more and more research and more and more publications that are dedicated to this interdisciplinary space how do you have any thoughts on how the review process should work should that also be kind of like a collaborative review where the machine learning person you know reviews the machine learning aspect of it and the domain expert reviews the you know, domain aspect I think absolutely reviewing should should work like that and I'm already starting to see some of that I've been mm-hmm. a review on a paper which very clearly like oh I'm the, I'm the ML person this other person is the materials person which is actually great yeah. and I've done that for chemistry places also and mm-hmm. I do think that you know I think it's uh, going to be um, uh, going to make the editor's job harder mm-hmm. to, to find a, appropriate ways to do this and to figure out how to sort of you know uh, uh, adjudicate the very different views you might get on a paper from someone approaching it from the ML side and someone approaching it from the material side but mm-hmm. um, I, I, I guess I, I'm quite hopeful this can all be done and, and work out okay but it mm-hmm. is probably going to require a little bit uh, uh, more work on everybody's part to do that effectively. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Materials and Megabytes podcast. We look forward to having you join us again next time.